getting high On our own supply, we getting high On our own supply, hey, giving you the game All facts, no lies, Hello and welcome to High on Our Own Supply, a podcast sponsored by Confident Cannabis. I'm your host, Brad Bogus. It's been a while since our last episode. It is 2020 and it feels like years have passed since, but this is an irregular year, so pardon me for irregular episode releases. <laughs> I am excited, however, to share this episode with you. We have a rock star of a guest on today, Amber Center of Breeze Distro, Congo Club, and Supernova Women. She's not only crushing it professionally, she's also making a huge impact in the Bay Area of California and beyond in fighting for equity in the cannabis industry. Her credits are too vast to list here, but you can find her everywhere because she's a major leader in our industry. And you'll hear a lot more from her on some of the more exciting projects she's working on in the interview later in the episode. But before we get to the interview, let's talk about the word on the street. You hear the word on the street? This word on the street is brought to you by Confident Cannabis. We're able to produce this segment because of the support of the team at Confident, who is constantly out there working deals and trades for buyers and sellers all throughout the supply chain. There's no other place to find the majority of verified lab-tested cannabis from only licensed sellers than on their marketplace software wholesale. You really have to see it to believe it. Coming from the industry, most will tell you that there isn't a great online solution to sourcing or selling their cannabis products, but those folks haven't yet logged onto wholesale by Confident Cannabis. So go check them out and tell them High on Our Own Supply sent you. They'll take real good care of you. Okay, so we have a lot to cover in this word on the street. For the most part, pricing is remaining somewhat consistent throughout this pandemic. The price per pound in California runs a range similar to that of last year's post-outdoor harvest, which is around $800 a pound for outdoor, $1,200 a pound for light depth, and $2K a pound for premium. This year's outdoor harvest doesn't seem to have had an impact on pricing. Some brands are seeing like plus 25% on those prices, and we can only assume relationships, service, amount of supply, and ability to get it to retailers efficiently are all factors in that price increase, as well as just overall brand value. Affordably priced cannabis is winning the market right now. Think of it this way. 20% of people consume cannabis, and 80% of those people are budget-conscious shoppers. The Cali market is hard on the budget-conscious consumer, and those that can deliver that product consistently will not be hurting one bit during this current dynamic. And despite the fact that affordably priced cannabis is booming, the bulk raw and processing material trade is a tough space to be in. This is one of the most highly competitive sectors of the market. Not much to expound upon here other than to point out that if you're in this trade, finding a way to stand out is paramount to success. Don't treat this like everyone else or you're in a race to the bottom while already being at the bottom of the market. California sellers are expecting prices to drop at some point soon, so they're eager to sell now while they can. In the meantime, Oregon remains a seller's market. In fact, some Oregon growers are now expanding operations into the burgeoning psilocybin mushroom market, with the recent news from the election making the sale of shrooms legal. Watch that space for sure. And that's the word on the street. We typically only cover one pro tip per episode. However, it's been a while, and it's the holiday season, so we figured you deserved a gift. This episode, we're giving you two. Let's jump into the pro tips. Pro tip! 
be on the lookout for hop latent viroid. It's a raging scourge of the cannabis plant, and it causes what is known as dudding. While this isn't exactly breaking news, it is becoming an even worse problem in the industry, particularly in California. For those that aren't familiar with this problem, plants affected by hop latent viroid will produce less buds, have brittle stems, and their growth and trichome production will be stunted, among other things. The problem is introduced by starting crops with infected propagation material. So the best way to avoid the viroid is to use disease-free seeds and propagation material. However, it sounds like that's not always as easy as it seems. Growers are trusting certain breeders that proclaim to have discovered the problem and are viroid-free, but are also the source of it. Much of this is speculative, of course, but it's important to be vigilant. Because if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that we're really bad at controlling viruses. Once hop latent viroid is present in even one plant, it passes from one to another mostly through mechanical means, like from scissors or shears. If you don't know which one is the infected plant, or if a whole batch is infected, your entire crop will likely be infected unless you practice rigorous sterilization of your gear. Rumor has it that once it's on your land, your only realistic option is to move. It's easier to control and mitigate indoors. This may not be exactly true, as I said, this is the rumor, but it's something to be hypervigilant about nonetheless. Our other pro tip for you this episode is really simple. Buyers love video. In large state where travel between buyers and sellers can be difficult or long distance, buyers aren't currently keen on committing without seeing actual video of the product. Photos just don't seem to be cutting it on their own. It's likely time for you to invest in some good quality methods of shooting video for your buyers. While shooting on your phone can do the trick, the better the quality video, the more detail is conveyed to the buyer, increasing the likelihood of them purchasing. So that's this episode's pro tip. Pro tip. Okay, time to get to our interview with Amber Center. Make sure and stay with us through the interview as our fun fact this episode is a real doozy about how the wildfires can change the chemistry of distillate. Let's get to Amber. Amber, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, Congo Club is an exciting brand, uh, and we've told uh, the folks a little bit about it. But one of the things that I think is so interesting is that there are a lot of brands in the cannabis space that are trying to do everything and offer every type of different product. Um, and what I found so interesting about what your brand is doing is you're focusing very, very specifically on one uh, you know, style of cannabis flower, what, you know, the, the African land race, uh, red Congolese. Um, I'm curious, like, you know, first off, what, uh, led your company to kind of, you know, really want to embolden this one specific type of product in this way and kind of lend your brand towards, you know, going kind of all in towards that one, uh, niche of the market versus say, trying to, you know, have the widest and most diverse portfolio of products available. Yeah, sure. So um, <clears throat> it's funny. Uh, uh, someone told me once the riches is in the niches. Now, <laughs> I love that. Gr- granted, I'm not getting rich, but you know, like, sure, sure, sure. There's definitely uh, opportunity in um, finding your lane and kind of rolling in it. The Red Congolese has a has a really deep uh, following in California, in particular in Northern California and Southern right. California doesn't have such an exposure to it, but, 
um, a lot of folks have an affinity for this uh, cultivar. So um, red Congolese, it's an African land race sativa, very clear headed, high, uh, high mercine content, which is uh, unusual for sativas. It's yeah. dominantly found in uh, indicas because, you know, it's kind of like a sedative type of property, but right, right. What it does, uh, in this, um, in the red Congolese is that it offers this very clear headed high and uh, with no paranoia. So you won't right. get those heart palpitations that you'll find in a Jack Herrera or in a train wreck or something along those lines. Indeed. Yeah, that that's interesting that you bring that up because I um, my experience with red Congolese, unlike most classically uh, labeled sativas, has been one of really positive effects. Like the, the, the strains that typically work for me that don't cause me to have panic attacks usually are high in myrcene and beta-caryophylline and some of those other sort of stonier uh, chemicals. But the, the red Congolese, like for some reason always hit me right. And, you know, Durban and Jack and all these other strains can tend to like really give me these like crazy chest tightening panic attacks. Mm -hmm. And uh, Red Congolese was always sort of on the shelf next to them, but doesn't in any way resemble the feeling I get whenever I encounter it. So that myrcene content must be the trick. It definitely is. It definitely is. And I believe that's why it's so popular and why people love it so much. It's this really awesome feeling it's awesome right you know so when you're trying to get um a you know a very niche product onto the shelves in uh the california cannabis market um do you find that you have an easier time working with retailers and you know uh delivery companies uh to to capture their attention because what you're doing is so specialized or do you find that they need to have some level of awareness of consumer demand before they're willing to have a conversation? Well, luckily for us in this particular situation, um, a lot of the retailers have experience with the strain. And, you know, this has been, a this strain has been around a good 15 years, at least really circulated through like Harborside. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. And I would say it became popular because of Harborside. So a, a lot of folks, are familiar with it and know what it is and and know why it's special. So they want it right away. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have um, a whole lot of problems trying to find folks that were looking to carry it. Red Congolese is one of those strains uh, that sells itself almost if you if you grow it good enough and if you do a great enough job. Now that's a whole nother story there. <laughs> <laughs> because it's finicky. It's a fourteen weeker. You know, a lot of people. Yeah don't want to make that kind of a commitment because I mean, there's got to be a reason why it's not the blue dream or the gelato of the right. current mass market. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of folks don't have that built out in their budgets to grow a, a 14 week strain when they can grow two, eight week strains, you know, and, yep. and almost the same amount of time. So, um, right. Yeah. We but you're that. lucky in that the, the, the strain has some sort of legend to it, yeah. at least in the area. And that seems to precede, the sales process, sort of, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. And then, of course, you know, it's, it's got just such a unique terpene profile and smell. So, uh, if folks haven't heard about it and they don't know, when they look at the bud and smell it, they're like, "Oh, this is different. It's very different." Right. You know? So, yeah, yeah. yeah, it captures people's attention, which is good. 
Totally. You, you mentioned just in one of your answers, especially right now, and it's kind of, you know, hard to talk about how the supply chain is functioning without talking about how coronavirus and, you know, responses to COVID-19 have changed all that and sort of uh, what I'm curious is, do you, you, have you found the playbook has been completely tossed up and you've had to redefine uh, what to do and how to do it during this time? Or have you found that after like, you know, say six to seven months now of uh, essential operating status status and quarantine, um, are things working relatively the same as they always have for you? Like, what does your world look like during this time? I mean, our facility is definitely different because of um, COVID precautions. Uh, regulations and standard operating procedures, you know. So now, we're, of course, we're doing temperature checks before folks walk in and um, everybody obviously has to wear masks. You need to be socially distanced, all those right, things. Right. So we're running on a, with less people in the um, warehouse than we were before in our facility. Um, but yeah, because that's just like a space problem, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then it was really interesting around the time of like, uh, when all of this started to come down and then in combination with the protests, because, you know, right. staff is really scared at that point and mm-hmm. they don't necessarily want to leave their houses and I can't say yeah. that I blame them. So I think a lot of, uh, people in cannabis, uh, if any, if we dealt with anything, it was staffing issues because, um, staff is scared and didn't want to, does, didn't want to come in for a little while. Indeed. Um, indeed. But, uh, outside of that, you know, um, we have been able to, you know, we've had to take a few breaks, fires, excessive heat, all kinds of right. like that. But, uh, but outside of that, we've been able to, um, just kind of keep it moving and, and keep grooving and, um, continue pushing forward. I mean, pivot in a little bit, you know, some of our, uh, our B2B sales strategies, we were obviously, but pre COVID really hitting the brick and mortar dispensaries. And now, uh, once we saw COVID and lockdown happen, like immediately, uh, pivoted to, uh, marketing to more d- delivery services and, and, yeah. and engaging delivery services quite a bit more to carry our products, which has been going well. Um, so yeah, you know, we've made a, f- a few changes, um, uh, but we haven't had to do a whole lot of changes, you know? We've yeah. To pretty much keep it pushing and keep it tracking and moving forward as we were before. We did launch a delivery service, um, so now we have a subscription box. And, okay. Um, yeah, I did see that. I remember seeing yeah, that. Yeah, and we, we sell our Congo basically direct to... Uh, customers at a, a little bit of a di- discounted price uh, than what they would buy um, through another retailer. So that's been good because of all the loyal Congo fans end up coming straight to us and getting some freebies and also um, being able to buy flour in bulk at a cheaper price. So yeah. that's nice. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, uh, I've, I've heard this um, discussed now on a few of the different interviews I've been able to do with operators around uh, COVID-19. And one of the things that seemed to be an emerging trend, um, especially like, you know, right as the pandemic response was sort of beginning, was more of a direct co- to consumer model for cannabis brands, which is to say that uh, rather than allowing for or expecting just the retailers or delivery companies to do the marketing for you. What brands are doing now is finding ways to connect their online experience to their consumers directly and send 
that demand to the stores. And it sounds like what you've kind of unlocked here with this subscription box is a similar sort of idea that you find the brand loyalists out there in the consumer space and you give them a thing that they want. And then they go and find that thing wherever that thing might be available, like a subscription box, you know, because what they want is the red Congolese. They want the, you know, Congo club experience. Uh, is that an accurate take on what your subscription box has been like? Is this more of a direct to consumer model for the, the, the company or are you still using mostly the retail outlets to do that kind of, uh, you know, distribution marketing? Um, I mean, by far our, you know, majority of our revenue is through our B2B sales, um, selling direct to dispensaries, but, uh, we, we have gotten some nice revenue, um, from selling direct to the customer. And we find that those really loyal fans of the Congo club kind of dig a little bit and find out how they can get it, you know, what other avenues they have. And then they find that we sell it direct. It's, it's, it's great because, uh, folks can just subscribe and, Get yeah. it every two weeks or every month or every week or whatever frequency it is that that they've chosen. And it's really a easy process for them. And they can schedule a time and schedule what day of the week. Very, very easy. So, um, yeah, 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 this is something uh, was definitely in response to COVID-19 for us and um, something that um, that we've found um, to be a really good value for us because we're targeting this very specific audience that's kind of like Congo Club, you know, fans or loyalists. And um, we're able to really bring them a lot of value. And, you know, this is building that customer base and customer uh, loyalty. It's, it's been fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that you, what you're basically saying is that you sort of picked up on the dynamic of how consumers were behaving during this time and adapted to make sure that you could offer them something that met the challenge essentially. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. Um, it, what I find most interesting is like, you know, if there's ever an end to this, uh, nightmare that is the Rona and we eventually are able to look back on a world and say, Hey, remember when it's kind of nuts to me to think about how unpredictable this year has been across the board, but let alone just for cannabis companies, you were mentioning fires and protests and, you know, just the, the change in operations. And yet, with all of this unpredictability, so many brands like yourselves are, are, are able to like actually pull through relatively well. In most other circumstances, like the amount of pivoting a company would have to do to survive is insane. Um, and here you are like looking at the di- dynamics and saying, okay, cool, we can do this little thing. We have to do this stuff a little bit differently. But for the most part, things seem to be moving along as they should, right? Yes. Yeah. Thank, thank goodness, right? <laughs> <laughs> Looking at yeah. other industries and other people, and I see them just falling by the wayside, and, and cannabis is just trucking along. It's like, wow, who would have thought, you know? Totally nuts. Totally nuts. Um, so, you know, uh, the, the subscription box is sort of like one of the things you were able to pivot to react to this, you know, dynamic and actually use it to your success. What have been some of the biggest challenges you faced so far in the last six to seven months adapting to the coronavirus pe- pandemic? It was definitely like staffing, um, the, the staff that has to like the delivery drivers, um, both on the distro side and the delivery side, making sure that they're safe. Um, It was a lot of safety protocols that was probably the most challenging that and 
and making sure that the staff is safe. So, right. Yeah. 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 It seems like, you know, uh, adapting at the start, dealing with the, uh, the actual operational logistics was the thing that everyone has in common, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And the, like cash handling, that was a challenge because everybody was scared to touch the money, you know? Mm. Everyone should be scared to touch the money always. <laughs> <laughs> My wife used to work at a bank and she's like, the money is so dirty. It is. <laughs> super dirty. So that was, that was really scary, you know? <laughs> Like, yeah, I, like, I don't want this. I'm like, oh, but we need this, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is so funny. Um, you, uh, you and I got a chance to talk a little bit at, before the recording about the um, the equity shared kitchen space that you've been able to build in in uh, in Oakland. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what that means for businesses, just in general, what that means for equity businesses, but also what that means maybe for those equity businesses in this time and place during the you know the pandemic and trying to start a brand during this time. Do you think that the that this concept is equally sound, uh, you know, uh, outside of these uh, conditions, or do you think that with these conditions, even more so, it is needed in the city of Oakland? Um, yeah. So um, a bit about the program. So uh, I've launched this uh, shared social equity manufacturing facility. It's an S-type manufacturing facility. Um, it is funded by the city of Oakland, so it's the first of its kind in the country. They actually funded two, mine and another facility. Mine is called Equity Works Incubator, and the other is Oakland Cannabis Kitchen. And um, Oakland being the pioneer that it is, um, they uh, kicked off and started the um, first social equity program in the country, which I'm very proud to say that my nonprofit organization, Supernova Women, was pretty instrumental in um, helping Oakland formulate this whole program. And uh, now to see it in its in this current phase, which it's at, which is it's in its third year, and rolling out uh, this shared manufacturing um, program is really, really exciting. Basically, um, we have six operators in our kitchen. Uh, the other kitchen houses nine. So we've been able to incubate wow. a total of 15 uh social equity manufacturers and uh, we'll be helping them make products basically uh, from concept to the shelf so amazing um, we'll be helping them um you know um, on the formulation and r d side of things come up with um, awesome products we'll be analyzing the data um, making sure that these products make sense for the market and that we're making products that the market you know wants and is looking for um, then, yep. um, I'll be analyzing some of the, the branding and marketing. My, my, that's what my background is in branding and marketing. So yep. make sure that the branding makes sense. And then, um, we've got a number of strategic retail partners throughout the state. So, um, they'll be placed on, uh, shelves of the highest, uh, volume retailers, uh, throughout the state. So it's all very exciting. That's incredible. Yeah, and because that's really the that's like I mean you know aside from the the challenge of getting money and getting started, getting onto shelf space after you've accomplished all that is then probably the biggest business challenge for a brand. Would you agree? I a hundred percent agree, one hundred percent. So yeah. I really really appreciate and value uh, the retail partners that we have because they understand these challenges as well. And they also understand what their role is here. You know, like we're trying to create inclusive supply chains and this is not going to be possible without them. 
That's so, right. You know, they get it. And uh, I'm grateful that they get it. And I'm really hoping that we can help these businesses get out of the incubator. You know, that's 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 right. The, that's the goal is to get them in there, get them launched, get them generating revenue and then get them out so we can pull somebody else in and help them do the same thing. What, what I find so interesting about this concept is how unified it is from start to finish in terms of uh, helping a brand, not just, you know, come up with a concept, not just get, you know, it off the ground, um, but actually, you know, into uh, prearranged deals with organizations that get it. Because like, I remember the very first time I walked into a retail store and I saw a section, uh, uh, actually it wasn't even a section of the, of the shelf. That's me projecting what I wanted it to be, but it at least had little signs next to each product that was, uh, from an equity licensee. And of course it was woefully short on, you know, uh, enough of those products and enough, uh, different types of those products. But the point was it was a retailer that understood that by making a, uh, sign by putting a little bit of effort into educating the consumer that this was a little bit of a different product, you know, if not only by the virtue of this is coming from, um, you know, either a culture or a person that you have never experienced a product from before. And that alone educated consumers to a point where they would be interested and want to know more about it. And, I, and I've talked about this a little bit where um, I feel like retail tends to make the argument um, that they'll do whatever they, the, the consumer demands and they won't do anything unless the consumer is demanding it. Exactly. And I feel like this is a bullshit argument um, because to a certain extent, they will do what uh, the consumer demands. But to another extent, it's up to them to tell the and educate the consumer on what they should be looking for, particularly yeah. with weed. I mean, when you go to a cannabis store, you're looking for advice and guidance, you know, and I think when retailers understand this and they start to prioritize um, you know, being more inclusive and they start to, um, ensure that a portion of their shelf space is being dedicated to equity licensee brands that are, that are doing something good and bringing something new to the market. What they're going to do is find greater sales, greater customer loyalty in the end, because those consumers will respond to them taking the lead rather than waiting to be told what to do. You know what I mean? I, I feel like, um, really because of the conversation around race, and the protests and everything that's been happening that's really put a magnifying glass on social equity brands, you know? Right. A lot of this has, has come from uh, consumers demanding these products be on the shelves. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, uh, I, and people being aware of what's going on, people being aware that black and brown people have been shut out of the industry and... Um, well, you know, there was a good chance that before legalization, you probably bought your cannabis from a black or brown person. And now that it's yep. legalized, we've all been shut out. So that's no longer happening. And a lot of folks Absolutely. are saying, oh, legal cannabis is so boring now. That's because it's not diverse. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, is, uh, it has become, in a lot of ways, a suited chase for profits in, uh, in the ways that so many other uh, industries are. Um, you know, unfortunately go the way of. And, you know, the thing that makes our industry so special is that, you know, we have the opportunity not to make those mistakes. Um, while I think there are a lot of groups out there continuing to make those mistakes and certainly states and cities that are allowing those mistakes to occur, it's really great to see some cities, you know, even if slowly 
starting to make a little bit of a lead here. Um, I, and, you know, Oakland helping to, to launch this, uh, this incubator with you, I think, is, is a, an amazing step that I haven't really quite yet seen a city go on on quite yet. Um, you know, there, I think there's, there's so much that needs to be brought to the table, money especially, um, to make these equity programs actually have some teeth rather than just be, you know, some language that doesn't really ever get seen to fruition. Um, but money and resources and, you know, having leaders like yourself who know how to walk them through like the sort of soup to nuts distribution process and getting them onto the shelves, I think is just something special. Yeah, we're definitely going above and beyond what the <laughs> RFP outlined for the city of Oakland in this whole <laughs> process. But, you know, I mean, that's I this is a cause that's very near and dear to my heart. This has been something I've been fighting for since you know i was there when we've been advocating a supernova when i say we supernova women we've been advocating for social equity since the beginning you know we were yeah. we were the first ones that introduced this type of language and that talked about how we needed to be included and and all this came out of a, a health and safety committee uh, on a tuesday afternoon in the city of oakland you know so yeah. um like this is this is like what i do in the industry and i feel um so fortunate to uh, be able to spearhead these things and and this program. So I'm of course going to do everything and utilize all my talents and my resources to really make sure that equity works as the name of our um, our incubator is. It, it, it's a it's an extremely important movement for uh, entrepreneurs like yourself to be involved in, and it, it definitely needs as much support as it possibly can get from other entrepreneurs like myself who are out there and you know uh, able to make a living in a in a place in an industry that has yeah, absolutely shut out you know legacy uh, operators and and called them criminals and put them into prison for life, um, you know. It, the fact that I'm able to make a living in this industry while some people are in prison is an absolute crime. Um, and you know, it takes people like yourself to lead and, and uh, people like myself to support and make sure that those efforts are, are, are valuable for our industry really to do what we're supposed to do. You know, we have a duty to live up to here, I think. And, uh, it's not just to make green. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, I know uh, talking to you about this, I'm preaching to the choir. So <laughs> um, getting into, um, you know, sort of more of that work, I think like because your experience as a distributor and working so closely with uh, the cultivation side of the business um, and having these relationships with the retail sides of the business um, for brands who are who are really trying to make it and survive right now that. Uh, don't really have inroads yet to good distribution or, uh, you know, relationships with retail. What, what are like the, the, you know, the things that you see really move the needle the most when it comes to trying to get onto retail shelves um, or, or working with a good distributor? Where do brands tend to fall down? Where are the ones that you really identify as being the strong ones? Like what are the things that you're seeing that are the, you know, hitting the checklist for you? Yeah, there's a few things. I think with... Um a lot of the smaller brands are forgetting that they need to um, tell their story. What's the differentiator between you and uh, this other brand? You know, right. um, why, why are you so special? And um, a lot of the smaller brands have reasons why they're special. You yeah. know? Um, and I think they forget to tell that story through their product. 
some of these bigger brands, um, they have market share and it's because they've been able to come in and have some nice packaging at a, have a great price, you know, price has been yep. a huge differentiator, but, um, when you're smaller, that's, that's hard to do, you know? So you've got to figure out some other ways in which you can um, set yourself apart, you know? And then I look at these nicer, the brands that are more expensive, for instance, seven, 10 labs, you yep. know, um, that's one of my favorite concentrates uh, to dab, and it's not cheap. You know, it's a hundred right, right. gram. And, yeah, no um, doubt. They've got fantastic a fantastic product with fantastic packaging, and um, I think those are their those are their two key markers. There is awesome product with awesome packaging to back it up. Yep. And yeah, I think people have really just got to. You're a small brand. You got to look at the whole package. And you can't say that, you know, well, I, my product is just as good as, you know, let's say it's a gummy and they're going against yeah. wanna brands, wanna gummies. Certainly. Like, you know, you, you can't, you're never going to be able to compete with that price. That's right. <laughs> so you've got to, you, you got to set yourself apart some, some other way, you know? Yeah. I think that uh, as far as smaller brands, like, especially um, these equity brands, like we've got to dig into our culture and our backgrounds and put, put that, those things into our products. And that's yep. what I did with the Congo Club. You know, I'm, I'm of black African descent. A good chunk of my background is Congolese. Yep. You know, um, I think that's what we have to do. We have to really dig into our roots. We have to dig into our cultures, speak to, speak to the audience through our own lens you know, we'll find success in that. I couldn't agree more. I, I feel like people really undervalue storytelling and find it to be maybe too fluffy. And what they're really undervaluing is that that is their entire brand's identity. Um, you know, that's the why anybody would ever care to try your product most of the time. You know, I mean, sometimes you can have something new and cool and shiny. Uh, sometimes you can have something super cheap. Maybe that might get you a customer or two. But like outside of that, especially if you're fighting for uh, more of the niche boutique, you know, a little bit higher price market. If you don't have a story, uh, you're, 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 you're DOA. I mean, as a consumer personally, whenever I'm trying to buy a product, I want to know what the product's about. I, I remember I went to a Supernova Women event in Vegas and I got a chance to meet uh, James Henry. Uh, I was talking with uh, James specifically of James Henry and he was telling me about his Haitian background and how his uh, mother was a doctor and that she kind of viewed cannabis as being sort of like crack or heroin, you know, uh, which is a common sort of thread in a lot of different um, uh, immigrant families in, in the United States kind of have the same background. And so he, he had this like mission that he wanted to, to prove his mother wrong in a way, you know, respectfully, of course, with the, uh, with the idea that there is a medicine here that can help people get off of opiate addiction. And he told me that story. It was like, I was at a networking event in the middle of a loud environment. You know, I, he was one of many different tables of amazing entrepreneurs I got to meet with and interact with. But man, that story just stuck. I've never forgotten that story. And whenever I see his product, I see that story in my head again. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to try a new product, it takes something like that for me to really care about it before I've ever even tried it. Um, I already care about his product before I've tried it. And I think that that goes down to why that story is so important, kind of what you were just saying. And pulling from the culture really, I think, can can make those stories have such hooks. Yeah, you know, it's really important to um, for folks to tell our stories, especially because um, 
our stories are so different than the other products that are on the market right now, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so I know like, of course, 2020 has been super unpredictable. Uh, trying to predict the future from here seems maybe a completely futile and worthless uh, <laughs> experiment. But just for the sake of it, do, do you uh, sort of anticipate you know, with with six to seven months of patterns, I guess, that may or may not have emerged over what has happened with coronavirus up to this point and how the industry has adapted to it. Uh, moving forward, do you think that there's going to be any lasting effects that will change the way the dynamics work uh, yeah. that weren't the case beforehand? Definitely. One being sharing of joints. That's what oh, that's gosh, I know that's bad. so i do see the dog walker like you know it's definitely come out with a vengeance and i see that continuing multi-pack the joints like sales are up you know i see that continuing edible sales big increase that's going to continue beverages increase that's going to continue you know i see i see yeah i see those just and really hopefully cannabis consumption overall increase (laughs) (laughs) right right (laughs) Just keep driving that one up. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I definitely see some trends that are happening, especially with pre-rolls and, and uh, edibles. And yeah, those are all um, very interesting. Um, I do think the election is going to play some kind of role in what's happening. Right. Um, that'll be interesting to see. Maybe not so much in sales, but certainly on the regulatory side for operators. You know. Totally. Totally. So... Uh, that'll be interesting, but um, excited to see what the future holds. That's for sure. Sh- shareable joints uh, definitely are out the window. I totally, <laughs> I totally agree <laughs> with that trend. Uh, and and like you know, uh, I, I kind of feel like we should maybe put a little gravestone up for that like part of our culture. You know, like yeah. it does make. I mean, like I get why we need to stop it. It's gross. You know, now that we have 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 this new perspective, but at the same time, I'm like kind of sad. You know, that was a really great way to connect with people. I connected with a lot of business owners that way. Same, same, you know, like you, you could always find me outside at some canvas conference, like smoking in the corner, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll still be doing that, but I'm not going to be like, Hey, try my weed. It's- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I, or I'll have an extra pre-roll and you're going to have to take that extra one, you know? Right. Yep. Just have a bunch of little, little mini joints you can have always on yeah. your person. Yeah. So that's, that's going to be an adjustment for everyone. I mean, look, it makes sense. Like when you see people go out uh, outside of a bar to smoke cigarettes, they rarely are sharing the same cigarette. They usually give you a cigarette out of their pack. So yep. we just need to get uh, 20 joints in our pockets and then, <laughs> and then we're oh, set for that. Which is a great thing, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the cannabis beverages certainly, I think also help uh, fill a little bit of that space, kind of like drinking a beer with pals. Uh, I had uh, the new can beverage uh, last night for the first time. And uh, that was a Which really one, nice the, the new flavor that uh, that pineapple jalapeno. Oh, I didn't get the opportunity to try that one, although I would have loved it. I got I did get to try the grapefruit rosemary and the blood orange cardamom. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm a big, huge fan of can. Uh, Luke is great. They're actually sponsoring um, uh, a beverage, a little beverage R&D lab at the uh, at the Equity Works incubator in our. Incubator. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it's really cool. He's going to be um, helping folks uh, create beverage concepts, which then we can scale out of the incubator. So that's really exciting. 
That is super cool. Yeah. This uh, uh, conversation has come up a number of times when I've been talking uh, about what what space to watch, right? Because the interesting thing about the beverage market is that it's the lowest performing part of the market and has been since it ever emerged. But it seems to be still the one that a lot of really long-term bets are being placed on. Um, I know Canacraft has gone you know, really all in on uh, promoting the beverage side of the market with the hi-fi hops. You see, you know, these new brands emerging and just like really hitting the market by storm like can. And like, I feel like there's so much room to grow here and it has the opportunity to really convert a lot of consumers who don't currently use cannabis because like the smokers, like we're here, right? Like if you love flour, you're already here. You've already found your way to the industry. If you love dabs, you're already here. Um, maybe, maybe edibles, but like beverages, especially, you know, the, the, the part of the market that drinks a six pack during the football game, I think still has yet to have fully merged over. And that space really has the opportunity to win a lot, but it's going to be super competitive. And I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to personally run a brand in that space. We'll see uh, how well everyone else does. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm really excited about certain segments of the beverage market. Um, I do think it's a commitment to have something like a big bottle of wine or, you know, some mm-hmm. of these things that are coming out. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see. That's right. That's I don't right. Know it's a commitment. I mean, it's a, it's a commitment on the, on the consumer as well as a right. distributor, you know, like bottles are, they're heavy, they're glass, they're big. They take up lots of space, like not ideal for a distributor to, you know, a, a product to carry, but. Um, right. And all of these things have to be refrigerated too, right? I don't think um, no. we've come up with a shelf stable. Yeah, we? everything has to be shelf stable. So nothing refrigerated, okay. but, but still cumbersome, you know? Yeah. I mean, look, a six pack of can sells for like 25 bucks, I think, retail. Uh, and when you compare that to an eighth of flour or a gram of extract or a cartridge, you know, you're talking about the size differential for the same price being completely off. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And imagine, I mean, a six pack of can is not that. It's not that that terrible to, as far as uh, storage goes, but some right. of these bigger wine bottles are a real commitment, you know? Yeah, because you can't stack them. Exactly. Yeah. Or you can, but they're like literally wine cases. Right. Exactly. You're talking, you know, and most of us distros, we're set up for flour, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And even in the dis- dispensary um, on that side of things, like they run into the same issues that we do, like they're such a limited uh, amount of storage that they keep on inventory, you know, that they have yeah. on hand. So they're not able to accommodate these big, huge things either. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you almost have to imagine a mega store for it to be able to fit that. Cause in the Bay area, so many of these stores are, you know, they're, oh. they're hallways. Yeah. <laughs> Tiny. They don't even have parking lots. Like, you know, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Amber has to be one of the most inspirational people in our industry. Not only should your company be a sponsor or donor to Supernova Women, but you should also actively do business with her brands. It's important to buy black. Customers want to know they're supporting equity licensees. But also, she's a complete boss, and coming across competent and professional operators in this industry can be rare. Before we go, I want to share one of the oddest fun facts to date. You've heard of Delta 9 THC perhaps even Delta-8. But have you heard of Delta-10? 
As reported by Jason S. Lupoy, Ph.D. of Extraction Magazine, Fusion Farms Extraction Lab noticed a bizarre crystallization in a batch of distillate extracted from flour that had likely been exposed to fire retardant dropped on the recent fires in California. The crystallization couldn't be tested by typical cannabis testing labs, so they took it to a specialty lab that analyzed it using nuclear magnetic resonance and determined that they were seeing Delta-10 THC. This crystallization had been detected before, but mistaken for CBC, but this lab had identified it as Delta-10. It's important to note that this was one extraction lab working with one testing lab, so the sample size here is very finite. It's also important to note that while fire retardant is suspected as the cause, it can't be conclusively determined at this time. Keep watching the space, and as more research emerges, we'll let you know about it. In the meantime, be careful about purchasing biomass from fire zones. I'm not saying not to buy it. I'm saying to make sure you have it analyzed correctly before and after your extraction is run. I'll drop a link to the article I'm sourcing in the show notes. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the podcast. Any and all reviews on your favorite podcasting apps would be highly appreciated. The more you support, the more I can bring on great guests for you to hear from about the supply chain. I'm about to have a baby and won't be recording for at least another five to six weeks. So from high on our own supply, have a safe end to 2020, and I'll see you in a hopefully sunnier, happier 2021. High on Our Own Supply is hosted and produced by Brad Bogus. It is sponsored by Confident Cannabis. You can check out Confident Cannabis at wholesale.confidentcannabis.com. Our theme song is written by Tone Oliver. Check out Tone Oliver at toneoliver.com or on any of your music streaming apps like Spotify. Make sure and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time. Supply, we getting high, high. on our own supply, Ay, giving you the game, all facts, no lies, yeah, yeah.